So that experience shifted the way that I thought about happiness forever. I, I learned there that happiness is really about our perspective on life, which is tied inextricably to our gratitude. And I think all of us, myself included, right, I had started to take things for granted. I, I took my hearing for granted. I took my cognitive faculties for granted. I took the 20 or so years of eyesight that I had for granted. And I think that's normal. We, we all do that. But what that moment, what that experience living with those people for 30 days highlighted for me is that you, none of that is guaranteed, right? The smallest things, right? How many of us take for granted that we were born in the greatest country on earth? Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Regular listeners hear me talk about role models like Viktor Frankl, Nelson Mandela, in the context of handling life challenges. During the pandemic, for example, I recognize there was suffering before, there's going to be suffering after, and there's suffering now. Our challenge is not to take on things outside of our control, since we can't, but to figure out how to respond, not just to the world, but within our hearts and minds. We're locked down. While Nelson Mandela was locked down for 27 years, if he could create meaning forced to break rocks, later to become president, ending apartheid, well, then I can find meaning in my home, able to go out every day with access to communicate with basically everyone, access to all the culture that's ever been digitized, and so on. In the context of sustainability, do we just give up? How do we find hope and resolution to act, even when everyone around us says what they do doesn't matter, or that only governments and corporations can make a difference? What role models can we find? Well, today's guest, Chad E. Foster, lost his eyesight to a congenital condition as a teenager, but that didn't stop him from becoming an executive for Red Hat, the world's largest open source software company. Uh, We didn't get to talk about that, but if you know that I love Linux, then as you'll hear, we plan to talk about that next time. And he secured over $45 billion in contracts throughout his career. He is the first blind graduate of the Harvard Business School Leadership Program and did what Oracle said could not be done. He built a software solution that created job opportunities for hundreds of millions of people. He has a direct and confident style. He's got this go-for-it belief system, and that's made him a speaker for places like Google, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, GE, Microsoft. And all this is what he writes about in his book, Blind Ambition. He also skis double black diamonds, as you'll hear. Here's Chad. Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Chad Foster. Chad, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. And I have you here for, I think of it as selfish reasons, although it's partly, I mean, it's my mission of, of helping people act sustainably, that so many people come to me and I'll tell them, here's something that I do. And here's this other thing that I do. And I'm sharing all these joyful things, things that I've learned a lot, things that I've really loved. Mm-hmm. And consistently, the most common response is, oh, well, you can do that, but I can't. I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have resources. It's too hard for me to do it. And you know, didn't you know that there's this, well, these single moms in food deserts and they got a, three jobs and three kids? And so meanwhile, Chad, you have, let's see, I'm just looking at the bio. You're an executive at Red Hat. You, Harvard Business School's leadership program. You are a Dean's List straight-A student. And you have this book, Blind Ambition, with the tagline being, go from victim to visionary. And the name Blind Ambition is because you're blind. You went blind. Actually, we spoke last time. And except for the skiing part, I don't think we really talked about your the experience of you losing your sight, I believe, in your teens. Yeah, it was late teens and while I was in college. So around 18 to 19 years old my eyesight began to fade. And by the time I was 23, it was completely gone. And it's from a inherited retinal condition. And they'd always told me that I could lose my eyesight. I was diagnosed at three or four years old, but it was just more of a concept. But in college, it actually happened. I went blind in college. I had to relearn how to learn, which is kind of an interesting thing when you're a visual learner. So I had to relearn how to learn and uh, turns out I was a better blind student than sighted student because I had to really. <laughs> Sorry if I laughed. I... No, it's okay. It's okay. It was. It's. Um, it's a little tongue in cheek, but I learned that I. I um, instead of memorizing information, as many of us do when we're 
skimming materials. I actually had to metabolize the information, had to just consume it and listen to things on audio tape. And I ended up reading my books twice, listening, listening to the lectures twice. And uh, as you mentioned, ended up making straight A's in the Dean's List and all of that. But it, it was definitely a difficult time. Do you mind if I ask you about the emotional experience of, of, I guess, it going from an abstract might happen to it actually happening? Like, what did things get grayer and grayer or did they, what was the experience like? Well, it was almost, if you've, if you've been, you know, in a, in a really dense fog, it started looking like that things started to get really foggy. So I started developing all of these blind spots where some people may have a blind spot in their periphery. Mine was, was actually developing everywhere. So my entire field of vision became a series of blind spots and it, uh, it's not too dissimilar as well. Now, you know, from um, if you go and get dilated for a pair of glasses and then you step out into the sun that's kind of what my eyesight is now. I, I have no useful vision at all. Only light, it, it just hurts my eyes because I can't focus the light. So I have light perception. I can tell that there's light. And so I'll wear sunglasses to keep the glare down because it is like stepping out into the sunlight after being dilated for a pair of glasses. What about the emotional experience? Were, were you scared? Were you confused? Were you hopeless or hopeful? Or did you learn a lot of emotional skills management to to handle yourself? Well, I did. Yeah. The hard way, obviously the first year or two, it was a roller coaster. And so I had this vision of myself as being someone who wanted to help other people. I wanted to go into the medical profession. I was majoring in in pre-med because I wanted to go into the medical profession to help other people. And now all of a sudden I was faced with the concept that I would never be able to even help myself. So it was it's a really difficult period. I had lost my self-identity, who I thought I, I was, you know, who I wanted to be. Wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, we go to college and people are supposed to figure out who they want to be when they grow up. I wasn't even sure what I could be when I grew up because I wasn't sure what was possible after going blind. And so I had all these questions and doubts. I'd lost my self-identity. I was depressed for a period of time because, you know, we ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And none of them, and none of them say that they want to grow up and be a blind person, right? So it wasn't what, what I aspired to be, but I had to come to grips with the fact that my vision for myself, my dream for myself um, of going into the medical field was something that would, was uh, seemingly unattainable. And there was, a, there was definitely moments of sadness, frustration, and anger um, as I processed that and came through that. But I ended up figuring out as I came out of that, what I believe the keys to happiness and success are. And I learned it the hard way, but I think I'm a better person for having learned it. I'm a, I'm a better person because of my blindness now, not in spite of it. I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm, I'm seeing to what extent I can translate it into an experience that I had. And I think a lot of people would benefit from going through of when I grew up, I had a certain vision for the future. It certainly involved flying around a lot. It certainly involved things that now I would consider very polluting. And if I look at not doing things pollute as giving up sacrifice, deprivation, chore, burden, it really sucks. But I also can't fly. You know, it's just like, I can't just flap my wings or fly like Superman. That doesn't get me down. That's a limitation for my, for my dreams and fantasies. So to, to switch to say, this is the world that I'm in now is not a world where, you know, it's full of pollution. And it's losing its ability to sustain life and human society. But once I say, well, that's my world. It's also a world where I can't fly. It's also a world where I don't have superpowers. That doesn't bring me down. This doesn't bring me down. And would you describe it as a, how parallel is the situation? I think there's a lot of parallel between the two. The essence of it is this, and this is what I learned from my experiences. The facts of a given situation are far less important than the stories that we choose to tell ourselves about the situation. We all become the stories that we tell ourselves. So when this happened to me, I could have chosen to tell myself, and I did maybe for a period of time, a story of poor me and Chad, this happened to you because you have terrible luck. And that is one technically correct story, or it could be. 
An alternative story that's just as true is this happened to you, Chad, because you're one of the few people on the planet with the strength and toughness to overcome this and use it as a platform and a tool to help other people live happier, more successful lives. Both of those stories can be technically accurate. One of them holds me back and keeps me trapped with the victim mindset. The other one sets me free and allows me to move forward. It attaches new meaning to my circumstances. So just like my blindness, uh, your inability uh, to, to fly on a plane, you could, you could choose to say, well, this isn't my dream and, and I didn't get to a, a achieve my dream and, and sustain the planet. Or you could choose to reattach meaning to it that reframes your circumstances around how you want to have an impact on the, the sustainability of human life on, on earth, right? Both of the baskets of facts are the same. It's just the way that we choose to narrate the situations to ourselves is far more impactful on our happiness, on our perspective, and our outlook on life than the circumstances alone. Yeah, I think of so many people saying to me, but it's true about the old story that is not helping them. I'm like, yeah, it is true. That doesn't mean it has to be the forefront in your mind all the time that, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't. Okay, maybe it's true, but you, there's so many things that you could be thinking and so many things that could make you feel happier or more productive or more, Yeah, pick your emotion. Well, and, and, and here's, the, here's the crux of it, right? And this is the realization that landed on me when I was 25 years old, 26 years old. Nothing I can say or do is going to change whether or not I'm blind. Nothing. There's no medical procedure, no amount of self-pity or wallowing or rumination is going to change it. So I can continue to do that for the next 50 years of my life if I'm fortunate enough to live that long. And I can live 50 more years in misery. Or I could choose to focus on something else. I could choose to, to tell myself better stories and still live a happy and productive life despite, and, and now I would say even because of my circumstances. So if you're looking at your situation and you're vacillating back and forth, do I want to focus on the negative or the positive? What good does focusing on the negative even do? Will it change it? If it doesn't, why even waste your cycles on it? And I'm wondering how effective you are in getting this across. I mean, okay, I'm looking at the bio and I see you've spoken Google, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, GE, Microsoft. These are amazing places and presumably full of high achieving people as well, but they're bringing you in. Do they bring you in for coaching, for teaching, for speaking? Because some of the stuff you're saying is, is until I, to the extent I've gotten it, until I started getting it, I was... You know the the story about the young monk goes to the old monk and he says, "Teach me." I forget the details, but he like pours water into the cup and the and he's overfilling it. And the young guy is like, "Why you're overfilling it?" And he goes, "Yeah, if it's if it's too full, nothing new can get in." Is like his illustration. And that was me. Like I was full mm -hmm. of knowledge and intelligence and things like that, and I wasn't really open to learning about emotional intelligence or or my flaws or my vulnerabilities. But your story and your experience might make it a lot more palatable for people. It does. I think that's the advantage that I have is because I've walked a path that not a lot of people have walked. Yeah, I've had some success in the business world and I've had some opportunities that allow me to speak to a business audience in the business world. But my personal journey of dealing with the curveballs of life, we all deal with with something. My something happens to be the fact that I went blind in my early 20s and I'm happier now and I'm more successful now than when I could see. And I think that's really unusual for people to hear. And they're curious about how that can be. And you know, what, what I've learned is the foundation of resilience. And, and it just so happens that it does tie off with the research. It, it, but I've, I didn't learn it in an academic way. I, I learned it by going blind, which is obviously a pretty heavy price to pay, but I, I feel like, you know, I, I'm not sure I would, well, I, I am sure, I'm sure I would not be as happy today had it not happened to me because I, it forced me to re-examine my focus, my effort, my determination, and my perspective on life. And so when I, when I get up on stage and I speak to people, I talk in a very anecdotal way about my story. Obviously, the, the lessons are um, all, all of the stories are aimed to teach a lesson, but 
the stories that I can tell because of my experiences allow me to connect with people in a way that would not otherwise be possible. I'm not, I'm not up there talking about, you know, there's, there are no slides, right? I'm just telling stories. And the stories that I've got from my life that I tell either when I'm on stage or in my book that just published, you know, either way, those are very personal stories that allow people for a moment to walk a little bit in the shoes that, that I, that I have. And I think it just, it helps them re-examine their own lives and their own perspective and, and take a step back because we're all so attached to our own lives and our own perspectives that it's hard. It's hard sometimes to create that separation and to take a step back and re-examine our lives and how we need to be accountable for our lives. You know, we're not all responsible for our circumstances, but we all have to own our life and its outcomes. If we don't, then who will? It's our life. I want to ask you about a couple of those stories to share. And, but I have to also ask you, you said at the beginning of what you just said that everyone's got their own struggles in life and yours is that you went blind. I presume you also had the other struggles too. I mean, it's like, it wasn't just like, that was the only thing you still had to solve. Like I'm sure you've, I don't know, had breakups or deaths in the family or things like that as well. Sure. Sure. Yeah. There, there were definitely no, no shortage of, of obstacles and adversity being thrown at me. I, I certainly didn't grow up in a, in a perfect, uh, you know, there was no perfect childhood, right? There was no perfect household. We all, we had our, our normal day-to-day struggles and this was just one more layered on top of that. And I'd love to hear a couple stories of where you, like the details of where some of these things came out. And I'm going to be selfish again, because I'm really curious about the skiing. Because when we t- spoke last time, it was one of the, usually I, I don't have too much trouble finding things to say, but when you mentioned the skiing, and I, I just couldn't, you know, I'm just sitting and, and double diamonds, if I remember right. Yeah, double blacks. I, and I was in Aspen last week, actually. So I've got some some fresh stories to tell. We were in Aspen seven days, had three or four days of fresh powder. It was fantastic. And I just think of when I'm at the top of a double diamond, I'm just like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And then if I to just the thought of closing my eyes is like, I, I can't even, I can't think straight, even just imagining it. Can you share the decision to go skiing, the the experience of skiing? Did you start back from greens or, and what could you do before? Well, I didn't put on skis until this is my seventh year ever skiing. And the first five years, I only had about three days per year. So I don't have an incredible amount of ski experience in my life. Obviously I was blind the first time that I put on bindings and I have a friend who was out visiting one of his business partners in Snowmass, which is in Aspen, Colorado. And he saw somebody coming down one of the mountains on a mono ski with a program called Challenge Aspen. And he was asking Jim, who owns the condo out there, which is on one of the runs, ski and ski out condo about it. And, and Jim told my friend Paul, yeah, they help people with disabilities learn how to ski. And uh, Paul said, well, my, my buddy Chad is blind and was always very active and I bet he would love to do that. And, and Jim said, well, yeah, they teach blind people how to ski too. And so Paul calls me and says, what do you think? Would you want to go skiing? And my initial reaction was, that just doesn't sound very safe. Paul. I don't know what, what you're thinking there, but that, that doesn't sound like the safest thing in the world to do. But then he explained to me a little bit about it. And I went online and did some research and discovered that there's actually a technique and a, and a skill set involved and where people now, some of the best ski pros in the planet teach people how to safely ski down the mountain without being able to see. So we ended up going the next year. Obviously, the first couple of years was you know, incremental. I, I was just getting comfortable with the idea that I was knowingly and willingly hurtling myself down a mountain without being able to see. And so we started off on the bunny slopes and the greens and eventually worked up to blues. And after about you know four or five trips, Ended up making it to blacks, and then last year skied a double black uh, for the first time. And yeah, it, it's uh, for me the experience of skiing. I've always been tethered since going blind. I've always been tethered to a dog or a cane or someone's arm. And on the mountain, I'm tethered to nothing. It's just me and someone skiing behind me with a Bluetooth earpiece, telling me which way to go. So it's a, it's an incredibly liberating and thrilling feeling skiing down the mountain and, and obviously there are you know consequences about what sort of terrain we're taking on and so we think very carefully about you know I want to stretch 
my comfort zone. Every time I strap on the skis, I want to grow. I'm not going out just to take it easy. I'm going out for growth and to become a better skier, a better version of Chad. But at the same time, I, I couldn't go out on our first trip and go down a black diamond or a double black. That would be unwise. So I think all of us, you know, we need to push ourselves, but obviously we need to, to take on challenges that that don't have consequences that are above and beyond what we can handle right because if i'd started with a double black obviously i would have been injured and probably never put on a pair of skis again but so it's, it's important to stretch but incrementally stretch so that we're prepared and capable of, of handling any repercussions that may fall out of the situation yeah it's just i mean i love skiing i haven't skied in a while but man that feeling of liberation and freedom and the wind and i listened to you share this i felt myself doing what people keep doing to me, which is I assumed, well, you must have done super double black diamonds before, and you were just restarting what you had known before. This this tendency to be like, oh, well, that person has this ability. That's what makes it, that's what enables them to do it. But you had to learn it just like everybody else. Well, not just like everybody else, in a different way than everybody else, but you started from zero. And, and everybody starts from zero, right? I think it's easy to sit around and explain away why we can't do X, Y, or Z. And it would have been easy for me to do that. The simple truth is I wanted it. I wanted to be able to do it more than I wanted to crawl back into my condo after falling down hundreds of times on my first couple of trips. And I fell down a lot and I have video, (laughs) good video to show that there were a lot of, a lot of crashes involved, but I wanted to learn how to ski more than I, I wanted to avoid the pain of falling. And yes, there was a lot of pain and I fell. My first trip, I separated my shoulder on my first trip because I told the ski guide, hey, look, if I don't have a major yard sale, then I know that I've not pushed myself hard enough. And so on my last day, I ski down the mountain and it's, and it's I don't know, it's not the steepest thing in the world. It's, it's a green, I'm sure. And I fall down and I feel something you know, cracking my shoulder. And she asks me if everything's okay. And I say, yeah, it's fine. Everything's okay. She says, your face doesn't look like it's okay. <laughs> I I managed to convince her to, to let us get a couple of more runs in until I, I fell on it a couple more times. And, and she saw obviously something was wrong. So as we're going into the medic to get x-rays, I call my wife and you know, my wife wasn't exactly thrilled with the idea that I decided to go skiing without being able to see, you know, I'm a pretty adventurous person. And I'm, I'm, I'm also, you know, I, I carefully researched and I discovered that there was a way to do it that was pretty safe. And as you can imagine, persuading my wife of that was a little bit of an uphill sell, but I did. And so I call her as I'm getting ready to enter the medic on the mountain there in Snowmass. And I say, Hey, how's it going? She says, Oh, it's going good. I said, yeah, it's, uh, it's going good here. Yeah. We've uh, last day, it's, it's been a good week. And so a little bit of chit chat. And then I follow up with, so, by the way, honey, what's our health insurance number? <laughs> she starts screaming at me, what's going on? What's going on? So I ended up, you know, getting, getting x-rayed and finding out that it was, it was separated. But again, you know, I, I could choose to avoid the pain um, of falling and potentially having an accident, but accidents can happen anywhere. So, you know, you don't have to go skiing to have an accident. I've had accidents happen just walking around my house or, you know, going to the gym or anything that would seem benign. So if we can have an accident and get hurt doing nothing, why would we not want to to go out and and do something that we love, that means something to us, something that we feel passionately about? It's worth the risk to me to actually live because I'm I'm convinced that maybe I could stay at home and, and be a little bit safer, but is that really living or is that just existing? I would rather live actively, passionately, fully. And if something happens, God forbid, you know, at, at least I've had a more fulfilled and purpose-driven life. Yeah, you're asking that as a rhetorical question, like why would someone not do this? And yet, what percent of the population, their answer is, it's probably not a, what's the word, a thought out. Like they don't reflect on it, but by default, they choose the couch. I mean, our society's really values, for whatever people say, their actual behavior tends to be much more comfort and convenience than what I think on the far side of that, or on the other, the complement to that would be, you know, the satisfaction of a job well done, meaning, purpose. Action. Yeah. Yeah. Once you start acting, then the rewards start coming in and you start wanting more. And it builds confidence. It's right. It's self-fulfilling. You start to demonstrate to yourself 
Yeah, let's go back to, to my example. And, and I think skiing is sort of a metaphor for life, in my opinion. Once I started demonstrating, you know what, I can, I can get the bindings on, okay? It's, un, it's hard, it's, it's uncomfortable, I can, okay, and I can get down a bunny slope. It's not the prettiest thing in the world, but, and that kept me coming back. And then I can get down a green and a blue, and oh, well, maybe I can do a black. Well, you start demonstrating to yourself after repeated effort, it's not easy, but it's possible. And that's really inspiring, right? When there's something that you want in life, and it doesn't have to be skiing, it can be whatever. Once you start demonstrating through repeated effort and determination that something's possible, it's really motivating. It, it pushes us to action. And you know, now, I've, like I said, the first five years, I skied a total of 15 days Yeah, in, in five years. I had 15 days of ski time. This year alone already, I have 13 days of ski time. And I plan to go back, hopefully, by the end of March. So it, it motivates us to action. It motivates us to want more and because we're proving to ourselves that it's possible and we can do it. Do you think of the blindness as, as something that, I mean, the way you're describing it, it's just, it's like a difference. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just one of the traits of you. I'm just imagining getting to the bottom of the slope and, and like, if you get to the bottom and you just did this double diamond, turning to the person next to me and be like, and I'm blind motherfucker or something like that. <laughs> But I don't yeah. hear that in you. Like I hear in you like, yeah, and I have blue eyes and you have uh, long hair and it's, I guess the long hair would be more of a choice, but I don't hear like a, um, I don't know. I don't hear you. I certainly don't hear you feeling sorry for yourself, which is what I would anticipate would be. I'm, I'm sure you did at some point, but I don't hear you making a big deal out of it either, except that it, it gave you experience. It gives you insight into something that is not special to you, but is just purely human. All this like the resilience and the ability to develop these things. Yeah, I think in some ways, and I don't really see it. Yeah, it's, it's a difference. In some ways, it's more motivating because I know it takes more effort for me to do certain things. For example, for me to use computers coming out of college, I didn't know how to use computers that well. I got a job at Anderson Consulting. I had to learn how to write code to engineer software just to be able to use a computer with my eyes closed. And so I'm, I actually relish the challenge. I think it would it would be less fulfilling if I could see skiing or, or anything, right? It would be less fulfilling because it would be easier. So I happen to think that the more difficult the task, the more fulfilling it is. And, and I think with skiing, in some ways, and this is going to sound odd, but I think in some ways, blindness gives me an advantage. And so what do I mean by that? You know, some people, when they're standing at the top of a double black and they're looking down, it's very intimidating. Very intimidating. You look around and you see the pitch at, you know, 50, 60 degrees. You see all the rocks. You see all the moguls. You see everything around you. And some people just say, you know what? I'm going to pass today. Well, I don't get intimidated by it. I'm just focused. Instead of looking at all of the things that, that intimidate people, I'm focused on one thing. And that one thing is my next turn. It's a left turn. It's a right turn. It's a whatever. Um, and so that gives me a real advantage so that I'm not overwhelmed by what my eyes are telling me. I think it overwhelms a lot of people when they look down and they see the full scope of what they're trying to ski. Maybe they, you know, they're seeing a, I don't know, a 1500 yard run to where they cannot even see the bottom of the mountain. They, they cannot even see the bottom of the run because it's so steep and it just freaks them out. I'm not looking at all of that. I'm just focused on Okay, I don't need to see the 1,500 yards top to bottom. I just need to see the next turn. I just need to know that my next turn is a left. That's it. And then my next turn is a right. And my next turn is a left. And I think in a lot of ways that gives me a real advantage because I'm not overwhelmed by the gravity of the, the big, big picture of what I'm trying to do. And I'm more focused on the task at hand, which is the next turn. I'm translating all of what you're saying into my environmental stuff. Because when I'm not flying, I'm not not flying. I am living locally. I'm getting to know people around me. I'm, and when I'm not getting packaged food, I am getting fruits and vegetables from a farmer whom I know. So when you were talking about the, if it's fair to put it, it's living in the moment, experiencing this moment here, what you're doing actually here, not some future thing. Or Then my experience of eating, which is one of my major experiences of nature, is way higher. Like apples taste so much sweeter than ice cream ever did. 
And partly that must be taste buds recovering, but it must also be a mental recalibration. And, and unlike the ice cream, that apples have a nuance. I mean, from apple to apple, even of the same, yeah. uh, what do you call it, breed or I don't know what you call it, the variety from mm-hmm. you know Fuji to, to Honeycrisp. And right. I had no idea that it was there until, I mean, I got it, I guess I heard about it because, you know, I did this thing where uh, my sister, my stepsister, one time was putting salt on my food and she goes, that's a lot of salt. And I'd read that salt, there's like a big variation in how much you could put on. And I believe that actually now I've, I see otherwise, but I did this experiment and hopefully a lot of people can do it or will do it. It's, I just put zero salt on anything for a month. And I knew what happened because when I was a kid, my, the family, we went from having lightly salted butter to unsalted butter. And when we switched, it was like, ah, this tastes, there's no flavor. This butter has no flavor. It's terrible. And then like a month later, sometime in the future, we got some salted butter for some reason. And I was like, ah, what is this? This is like lightly buttered salt. This is, this is like way <laughs> too much. And that happened again when I was older. This is like a couple of years ago. It's in my blog somewhere. And after putting no salt on, now I put in a tiny little bit compared to before. And there's much more flavor of salt. And sometimes friends visit and they'll put, I see them putting salt on what I cook because I don't put on enough salt for them. And then I taste theirs and I'm like, ugh. How do you eat that? Yeah. Well, anyway, so back to life experience. Yeah. You know, my mom was on, on this podcast as a guest and she said, she doesn't believe me that I'm enjoying life more now. She thinks, she said, like, Josh, it's good that people like you and Greta are out there, you know, in the forefront doing things that no one else wants to do and then telling us that you like it. I'm like, I do like it. She thinks I'm lying. My own mom. <laughs> but you, I mean, you saying that you like the, you experience skiing more at a higher level to a greater degree. You like it more despite not seeing. Cause a lot of, I mean, I've never been to Tahoe, but I remember a friend coming back from his first time out there. I was like, you wouldn't believe what it looks like. I'm like, I don't know what it looks like, but it's, I mean, you can see that picture on a photograph anytime. You can even see pictures like it in real life. That's not the experience of skiing. I mean, there's nothing like experiencing skiing or surfing. I mean, lots of different things that people can do. Let's talk a little bit a bit about purpose, right? I think what we're getting at is purpose. I think that's the undertone of what we're hearing here. You know, your example, your your taste buds are acclimated to a certain flavor, whether it's, it's salt or, or ice cream or whatever you want to choose, and then you know, you're you're acclimated, so you've you've sort of become accustomed to the way that it tastes, and once you remove it from your diet, then you can appreciate it more once you start introducing it slowly. But I think just as importantly as that sort of physical sensation that takes place, you know inside you get enjoyment and deep fulfillment from the purpose of more sustainability. And I think from from me too, and and I think happiness is a little bit different than joy. I think joy is like the sensation you get more of a, a raw sensation. I think that happiness is tied to fulfillment and, and purpose and, and all of these different things. I personally get a tremendous amount of fulfillment from doing something that is a little bit harder and it's a little, it's more challenging. And I get a lot of purpose, which leads to, to happiness as, to, as does the fulfillment from helping other people think more productively about challenges and obstacles and how to cultivate resilience and how to live happier, more successful lives. That brings me a tremendous amount of purpose. And it actually makes going blind worth it, right? Which is a really bizarre thing to hear, I'm sure. And it was definitely a bizarre thing to think the first time that it occurred to me, but it's allowing me to take my struggle and use it as a strength to help other people. And I think you're doing something similar, right? You're, you're, leading by example and demonstrating how we can create a more sustainable way of living through your own sacrifices. And I think that has to bring fulfillment because it's purpose-driven and that will in turn, I think, leader will, will lead, excuse me, to greater levels of satisfaction and happiness. There's a couple directions to go here because one is that I think that most of us, I would tend to think of vision as something that I would not want to give up. I think of it, it's not inherent to being human in the sense of like consciousness, uh, but it's really up there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're not having something that feels almost essential to being human is actually revealing mm-hmm. the more important parts of humanity 
that are not special to you. You have no special ability to be resilient. You have no special ability to learn challenging things. You have no special ability to feel happiness or uh, accomplishment. And this, maybe by cutting away some of the junk, you distilled out more of what brings meaning and purpose. Is that fair to say? I think it is. I think it is fair to say. One thing that I think people experience right now, especially in today's always-on culture, there's a little bit of sensory overload, and I would say in particular visual overload. People are always switched on, whether they're watching TV, on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Pick a social media platform. People are always switched on. And so they're always consuming information or they're always being bombarded with information. I think the one thing that I've got in some regards, and I I do use social media, but I think I've got a little bit of an advantage. Certainly I did before technology became quite as pervasive as it was, is it without all of that constant flood of information going to my eyes, it gave me time to really think and reflect. And contemplate you know the the world and my place in it and think about what is happiness and and what you know what is success and how do I want to hold myself accountable for being a happier Chad and for being a more successful Chad. And I think a lot of times there's just so much information flying around at people that it's hard for people to switch off and take a pause and step back and and think, right? Be alone with their thoughts. And you know them, themselves and their place in the world. So I think from a lot of from a lot of different angles, my lack of eyesight and not consuming information with my eyes has given me a little bit more of an opportunity to take a pause and think about things in a, in a more meaningful way. Can you share some of the reflections? I don't know if if that's something you can just conjure up in the moment, or if you need time to let it rise. Well, I think. Happiness is not a feeling. I think a lot of people believe that happiness is a feeling and it's an emotion. It's not. It's a decision that we make. It's a perspective that we take. Each and every day when we wake up, we either choose to deliberately frame our perception of the world or allow our circumstances of life to determine our happiness for us. I learned this when I went to Leader Dogs for the Blind to get my first guide dog. This was in college. I was in need of a way to get around and get to my classes. So I went to Leader Dogs for the Blind, where I learned far more than just how to use a guide dog. This was the place where I learned one of the most important lessons of my life. Now, while I was there, I met people who had mental impairments who were also blind. I met people who were on dialysis because the diabetes that robbed them of their eyesight was also destroying their kidneys. And I even met these young girls who were deaf and blind. And they, like everyone else there, were getting a service dog to be independent. Now, for these girls, we had to talk with an interpreter who would then sign into their hands. And that was the only way that they could communicate. Yet they were getting a guide dog to travel independently. So it's one thing when you meet someone on the street and you hear how rough they have it, but it's another thing altogether when you live with someone and you see their challenges firsthand for an entire month. So that moment was a real tipping point for me. It shined a light on how all of us can easily take things for granted. Yes, I had 23 years of eyesight, more or less, all of my hearing and kidney function. And despite some questionable decisions in my youth, all of my cognitive faculties. So that experience shifted the way that I thought about happiness forever. I I learned there that happiness is really about our perspective on life, which is tied inextricably to our gratitude And I think all of us, myself included, right, I had started to take things for granted. I I took my hearing for granted. I took my cognitive faculties for granted. I took the 20 or so years of eyesight that I had for granted. And I think that's normal. We, We all do that. But what that moment, what that experience living with those people for 30 days highlighted for me is that you, none of that is guaranteed, right? The smallest things, right? How many of us take for granted that we were born in the greatest country? on earth. How many of us take for granted that we were born at the dawn of the information age, which unlocked so many possibilities for people with different disabilities, being able to do a job in a technology or a services-based economy? How did we volunteer to be born in, you know, at the dawn of the information age? We could have just as easily been born in the medieval era or in a country without access to, to food or water or technology or, 
you know, the, the vibrant economy that we have here. So none of us asked for any of this. It was just a gift to us. And so I think just being very mindful about everything that we've got in front of us, much of it we had no say-so in whatsoever, allows us to look at the things that we don't have, like for me, it's the eyesight, with a more realistic and, and optimistic point of view. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Have you also read, I'm sure you've read Viktor Frankl or Diamond Bell and the Butterfly? I've read yeah, Viktor Frankl for sure. Yeah, fantastic book. And is it a different experience for you reading it? Or maybe you read it before you went blind? I read it sort of as I was going blind. And I thought it was uh, really remarkable. But it's just, you know, it, it's, it's like the, the, the great escape hatch for all of us from our circumstances is our mind, right? How do you choose to receive things? What are the stories that you're telling yourself? If you're telling yourself, yourself a story of poor me, then that's who you're going to be. If you're telling yourself a story of I've got this, I'm going to own this and make it look good, then that's who you're going to be. At the end of our lives, we all become the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah, so I, I wonder if one of your identities is, is like master storyteller. Well, I think from a resilience point of view, I think all of us have to examine our current situation. We have to look at our basket of facts. What are the things that we cannot change? For me, it's blindness. And now how do we envision our image of greatness for ourselves that includes our basket of facts? So what's a vision of greatness for Chad that does not ignore the fact that I'm blind. I need to figure out what that is. And then there are things that are outside my sphere of influence, like the blindness, but there are things that are inside my sphere of influence. Like, for example, you know, I had to relearn how to learn, how to go to college, had to get a college degree, get a job in the business world, learn how to use a computer, learn how to write code with my eyes closed. All of those things were difficult, but they were possible. But with a, a very inspiring vision for myself, my future self, it motivated me to action. It motivated me to relearn how to learn. It motivated me to learn how to write code with my eyes closed. It motivates me to, to go skiing without being able to see. That bold vision of greatness that I have for me moves me to action. And so when I start combining a vision of greatness that includes my unchangeable circumstances and, and shines a light on some of the gaps that I can control, the things that I need to learn in order to achieve that vision, then all of a sudden I can start creating a plan and I can create a roadmap. What are the, the actions and habits that I need to take in order to move towards that vision of greatness? And how am I going to hold myself accountable along the way so that I make sure that I'm making progress towards that vision? I want to hear this applied to sustainability. So I want to start that process in a second. But I, I also have to wrap up one thing that you said two things that most people perceive it this way, that you said leading by, that I'm leading by example, and you said that I'm sacrificing. I have to comment on those because I find that leadership, by example, may work in some places, but on sustainability, I find that people have an amazing ability to look at people doing something that they themselves might even want to do and say, oh, well, you can do it, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I. I'm doing what I do to live by my values. Separately from that, I also lead others and I have techniques to lead people, but I don't believe that my doing something, I'm happy if people see me as a role model and I hope that they do, but I don't believe that my not polluting or my decreasing my pollution leads others. It's just, it's simply living by my values and separately I lead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I'm living by my values, I would have looked before at not flying or avoiding packaged food, not going out to restaurants, not doing takeout. I would have looked at that as sacrifice before, but now that I do it, it's the opposite. I wish I'd changed earlier. I'm living in much more abundance now than I was before of what matters to me, Mm -hmm. if not the material 
I'm certainly less abundant in plastic, but more abundant in joy, community, connection, fun, meaning, and purpose. So I couldn't let that go by without commenting on it. That makes sense. Now, getting to sustainability, is the environment something that is important to you? Is it something you act on in any way? It is. It is. It, it definitely is important. We've, we have a, an all-electric car that we've, we got because of that. And uh, you know, I was also kind of hoping that it might be able to drive me around at some point <laughs> as well. But, but, but it is. It is something. We're, we think about it. Uh, we're not nearly as, as committed, if I'm being very blunt, as you are. Uh, but it is something that we, we do think about. So when you think about it and you choose to act, what motivates you? What do you think about when you think about the environment that, that gets you not just to passively observe? I think the thing that, that motivates me is the fact that just logically speaking, right, you look at the rate of, of population expansion and the way that we're depleting Earth's resources, you know, it's, it's not a matter of, of if, right? It's a matter of when what we're doing is no longer sustainable. And so how many generations can we support? We could argue about, you know, how many generations it is. We could debate that, but none of us could really debate that the level, the, the pace and, and rate of depletion that we're on is not sustainable into perpetuity. And so if we care about our planet or our children or their grandchildren's children's children, whatever the case may be, something's going to have to change. So you're looking forward at what we're losing. I'm also curious, like, what was your experience of what's being lost? Like, I think a lot of people take for granted that their experience of nature is the same as others. And so they're talking about the same thing that's being depleted. But what I find is that it's unique. Everyone's experience is different. Mm-hmm. Like, what is, what do we want the grandchildren to get? What's, what's valuable? Well, I think it, it I mean, it starts with, um, you know, the water supply, I think, is um, questionable moving forward, right? I think just the amount of water that we're going to have, especially you think about uh, the, the pace that oceans are rising and the amount of fresh water that's available. And I, you know, I'm not a doom and gloom kind of guy, but, but if there's limited supply of water on Earth, you could, you could make a case for a lot of conflict in the future. Um, and for you know, countries and, and people who are who are contending for that water supply, so I think that that's a possibility. Food supply, I think we'll we'll um, we'll figure we'll figure that out. It may not be you know the most efficient thing, but I I don't know. I think the the thing that's foremost on on my mind is the water supply. Well, I'm also trying to get at uh, your personal experience, your sense of these things, mm-hmm. not an abstract future potential, mm-hmm. but. Like a lot of people, when they talk about water, it often means that they grew up near the beach or by a river or something like that. If that's what they're, it's different. I'm not saying that was your case, but what's your personal experience? Is there something that, that, that you see or hear in your mind when you're thinking about what, what is nature? Well, I think my, my mind immediately goes to two places, the ocean and the mountains. We have a, a place, the beach that we like to go to. And what would that look like if things continue along the current path? You know, we, we like to go there and spend time. And obviously we've talked at length about how I enjoy being in the mountains and, and skiing that obviously would, would look and feel very differently. What are the emotions that they, that these things bring up either being at the beach or the, by the ocean, or I mean, you talked a little bit about the experience of skiing, the experience of the mountains. So peace, tranquility, um, clear headedness, it, it allows you to unwind, right? It, it allows you to disconnect um, from technology or, or work or society and really reconnect with nature, which I think is really, it's very re-energizing and, and very, um, very calming. It sounds like that effect you were talking about earlier about, I mean, you said that most people today, I agree, you know, they're scrolling and constantly scrolling and information, information, information. And I think then you were talking about just taking a step away from the constant inflow of information, but I think going out into nature is then a step farther, maybe many steps farther of, I think you said, re-energizing, reflection, calmness, that it's even, like, it's not just not social media, it's extra something else. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I wanted to get to that experience of, you know, the emotions that it brings you, how it makes you feel, because the next step is I invite you at your option, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But to think of something to do to act on those feelings that you get with nature, as well as the feelings of the foreboding of what, of what might be to come, 
if we don't act. And to clarify, I'm not saying what can you do to save the planet? This is not about, you may have an effect on the planet, but that's not the goal. The goal is an experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to act on, it's, it's purely personal. And in particular, something new that you're not already doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people are doing something and glad, keep, please keep that up. Mm-hmm. And, but something that's not telling other people what to do or trying to make a plan for others or trying to you know, change some law or something, but that you personally do with your hands and that has some physical component to act on those feelings of any of the ones that you picked up or all of them of the calmness, but that has a physical effect on the world that changes it in some way that you would call an improvement which can be big, it can be small, it can be short, it can be long. And if you do go for it, then I'd invite you back a second time to share what that experience was like. Okay. At this stage, most people can't think of anything. They're usually thinking of like what they already do or what the New York Times has suggested that they do. Right. And it takes a bit of back and forth, which usually takes a bit, it, very rarely is someone like, oh, I know what to do. Sometimes, but usually it's a bit of back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could see where it would take a little bit of back and forth. So. I don't drive a lot. So uh, <laughs> that was a blind joke. Um, so, so I'm not sure it's cutting down on driving, but we, like I said, we have an electric vehicle as well. But so what, what sorts of things, can you give me a few examples potentially to, to think about just to get my creative juices going? Well, usually it comes from like your experience of say the mountains or the beach or the foreboding. It's like, I asked you about it and you answered my question, but you felt those things in life before. So usually it's connected with where those, like when was the last time you felt concerned about the water supply or when was the last time you felt, oh my God, this mountain is is beautiful or, and was there anything about the foreboding that made you like, I wish I could change something about that or something about that awesome feeling you thought, oh, maybe I could restore it in some way or something. Usually it's connected to where people feel those emotions. Like for me, when I walk down the street and I see garbage, it like kills me. So like, I, I can't believe that people, I mean, it's, it's, it's enough that we've paved the island over Manhattan, like, as if that's not enough. Now we're going to throw wrappers on the ground. So I pick up garbage every day. That's something I've been doing for four or five years now. And, but it, the point is not the picking up garbage. It's the, that feeling, like the feeling, in my case, it was a feeling of helplessness that I, I really didn't like. And I'm not pretending that me picking up garbage changes the world because divided by 7.8 billion, it's really very little, but it doesn't stop as it's happened. Now I work with my city councilman and the candidates for mayor on this stuff. So it's, it's like building it to more, but that's not the point. That is the effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's usually like, where does, do you remember the last time you felt one of these things or a time that you felt one of these things? And was there anything about that situation that you could act on? Cause it's really more about inside you than the, than most people get stuck on how, how to fix the world. You know, if I don't solve how to recycle everything all the time, then it's not worth doing, but that's not this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of where I could play a role and something I could do. And the thing that I keep coming back to is, is, is I guess, cutting down on waste because, you know, we have a four, four person family, here, two kids and my wife and I, plus a German Shepherd guide dog. And so we, we, we go through quite a bit. And of course we recycle, but to, to your point of just cutting down on, on how much waste there is, I think could, could have an impact. I also want to be realistic. I'm probably not the best guy to go out and find trash and pick it up, right? Just being blind. <laughs> yeah. So I have to be a little bit realistic about it as, as well of what's the art of the possible. But how does that land with you? Is that, is that seem, um, in the realm of possibility? If it's something that you have felt like, oh, we produce more waste than I'd like in the past, and this is a chance for you to act on that, then that would certainly fit the bill because it's something that's it's in your life already mm-hmm. that you've already felt. And the next step would be to make it a smart goal. So specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Because mm-hmm. if it's just like, I'm going to lower trash that's or decrease waste, that's Too really fuzzy. vague, hard yeah. to do. yeah. And so if it's like X amount for this amount of time of this type of waste, that usually is much more doable. Yeah. So what I'll have to do is measure how much we're doing. And I'd say my goal would be to cut the amount of waste that we have in half within a year. So then that would certainly fit all the bills. And it would also involve family, which usually makes it seem hard at first, but then I predict that it will, the family will be like, 
oh, this is a really cool project, but I can't say for sure. You know your family better than I do. Sure. And if you were to do that, oh, and by the way, it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. Uh, it, it could be that you just do it for some time. And then, because until the rest of the year, we're March 2nd recording now. So that would be something like nine months and change to do it. But I'm not saying you have to go for a nine-month change or that it has to last for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But what I'd like to do is to schedule another conversation after enough time has passed that some changes happen that if I ask you, how did it go? You have a meaningful experience that you can say, well, I don't know what you would say. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. That, that, if that's the case. Yeah. If that's the case, then about how long do you think it would take before you could say, you know, we've done enough that I can, it was, you know, this part was easy, that part was hard or whatever. I'd say six months, three to six months. All right. So after we hang up, could we schedule a, uh, a second conversation for them? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Well, let me ask you, I, I've walked you through this. And so definitely I played a role in prompting you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you doing this for me? Um, would I have done it had you not prompted me? Probably not. Yeah, that's probably no. Probably not. But but deep down inside, do I want to do more? I think, does everybody want to do more? I think we do. So I think your prodding is is spot on. I think it's it's what people need. I think, you know, just like we talk about, and, and my thing is, you know, mental sustainability and, and helping people cultivate resilience. We all sort of get complacent um, and, and we just react. And I, I think about that. My, my thing is to think about that from a, a, a mental point of view as it relates to a person's happiness or their success and what they want out of life. I think the same thing can be said for how we react to the sustainability of the environment. I think we all deep down, we all want a, a planet that lasts longer and provides for our grandchildren. And, but I think we just get complacent and think like, you know, it's too big. The problem's too big. And, and we just sort of throw up our hands. So I think, um, but you know, the, the reality is one person at a time can make a difference and, you know, can create a ripple in the water and that, that water, that ripple in the water can have an impact. I'll clarify some of the technique because I find that you, you described as complacency and I, I'm going to be, I'm, the experts generally talk about, you know, the sunlight hits the earth and it turns infrared and the carbon dioxide captures it and it's like this warm blanket. Or they'll give this science that is actually disconnected from people's lives or, or they'll say that 100 million people are going to be displaced from their homes in Bangladesh and we have to do something about that. Mm-hmm. And these are not actually what's inside us motivating us. To lead someone, you have to go where they are, not where you want them to be or where it's most important. It's where they are. Mm-hmm. And where people actually are, are the things inside them. That's why I was, I was I kept insisting on like, what's your personal yeah. experience with these things? That's yeah, good. And to, if I were to say, if I were to then say, wait a minute, you're just going to have your home trash. What, that's, don't you know about Bangladesh? That would actually disconnect you from your actual motivation. So people, sometimes people contact me and they say, I love your podcast. How you get people to do these little things. I'm not asking people to do little things. A nine month change is not a little thing. I mean, nine months is a significant portion of someone's life. Mm-hmm. And you're doing it with three other people whom you don't yet have permission yet. So <laughs> I, I predict that it'll go like they'll like it. But I think that they'll, you know, you have to think, you'll probably have to think of how you present it to them. Yeah. So it's not little, big or small is not the point for me. It's meaningful. It's, is, are they doing it for something that they care about? And so to me, to say, here's one little thing you can do for the environment to me is like poison. It's like saying you don't want to do it, but you have to, tricking them into doing something. Disconnected from their life. No one says drinkless driving Monday. They say never drink and drive because they know that it's always, everyone will always consider it better to, if you're going to drive, drive sober. Mm-hmm. And so when they see meatless Mondays, they're like, I know you want meat. I want it too. To get compliance, maybe at the expense of reinforcing the belief that it sucks. Right. I'm not sacrificing. Right. I, I, I suspect that at the end of it, you'll probably have a rewarding experience that you'll want to share with others. So little things may add up. I'm not going to argue against that, but things that people care about and share, that adds up. It's all about the linkage between the motivation and the action and you know, the outcome. 
I, th- I, th- I think that's uh, that's the right way to think about it because how you choose to approach it and and motivate people um, can can either turn people on or off, right? I, I think I think your approach is spot on. Um, starting, like you said, and you said something that really resonates with me because I think about this from a like when I talk to people about diversity and inclusion and and why we have tension um, across different groups of people. I think there's a lot of people out there who choose to meet people where they think they should be as opposed to where they are. And um, there's a little bit of lack of, of assumptions of good intent and, and lots of things that play into that. But when, when you said meet people where they are, that, 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 that really clicks with me. I try. I'm not very good at it. I mean, I'm much better than I was before, but oh man, so many times I listen to people talking about their stuff and just like, I just want to say like, shake them and just be like, are you listening to what you're saying? Like, do you realize what you're, and then I'm like, no, they don't realize. Do you know how this lands? No, they don't. Most of them don't. I wouldn't really shake someone. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to, right? Sometimes. <laughs> I'm thinking about like, um, I don't know. I just had in my head, like some scene in Dragnet or something where they're like, no, you know what I'm thinking of? One of the Naked Gun movies where. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> he's like shaking a guy down and he's like, uh, the guy's like, I, I don't think I can remember. And he goes, well, how about this? And he gives him like some money. And the guy's like, oh, I'm starting to remember. And he gives him some more money. He's like, well, I now I remember. And then he turns around and he said, the criminal now asks the cop a question. He's like, I don't know. And the criminal's like, well, how about this? And he like bribes the cop back. to Gives him, gives him the same money back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are good movies. Yeah. Well, to wrap up, is there anything I didn't think to ask to bring up? And, and I'm also thinking like... I, <laughs> I don't know this sounds silly or not, but this I'm looking at your bio and you're talking about your dog. And I don't know if you know how adorable this dog is. I'm sure people say this, but oh, yeah. I'm partly saying this because to get people to go to your webpage. But can you say a few words about your your webpage, the your book, your speaking, and uh if there's anything I didn't that didn't come up that's worth bringing up? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with the dog because you're right. He is <laughs> he's definitely the main attraction. I have a 90-pound German Shepherd named Sarge, who has traveled to probably 30 or 40 countries with me in the last few years. So he's a normal dog as far as $70,000 dogs go. And I didn't pay that for him, but that's what the school invests in each one of these. He came from the Seeing Eye, just outside of New York in Morristown, New Jersey. He's an amazing dog. He does better than I do on these these long-haul flights. Uh, Just extraordinary, the, the amount of patience and intelligence and everything else. He's Obviously, he's adorable, too. But you know, folks can can see some of my videos on my website at chadefoster.com. They can learn about, you know, what sort of my, my belief system, a little bit more about that on the videos page. We have a book page there where they can see more about the book. The book's landing page is blindambitionbook.com. The book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, Bookshop, uh, and, and uh, many other fine retailers, Target, um, and yeah, what's the other one? Um, uh, there are like probably eight or twelve different links there on my my page where people can see different places that 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 they can buy it. But um, obviously, we're on social media. Find Chatty Foster for Facebook and Instagram, and Chatty Foster for Twitter, and all those things are there on my homepage, which again is chadefoster.com. But I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation, talk to someone who, like I said, is. Um, is action oriented and, and holds themselves accountable for what they want out of life. That, that really inspired me when I saw that it really resonated with me, Joshua, just looking at the actions that you're taking and how you're holding yourself accountable and really moving the ball down the field, as they say, to use a, a sports analogy. Let's have a, a, a friendly competition of who can either inspire the other one more or be inspired by the other more. I can. Cause I could have said the same. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Anything that didn't come up that's worth bringing up separate from those, from the, the details of the book and the page? Did you want to do, did you want to talk about Red Hat at all or? Oh man. Oh, let's table that to next time. Cause yes, I do because I'm very geeky and I'm very into free software where free means free as in speech, not as in free beer. And you're an executive at this company and I can't see myself talking about it without talking about it a lot. Okay. Yeah. We can do can we put it. Can we talk about it next time? Yeah. Let's do that. Then let's wrap up here and we'll schedule next time. Uh, Chad E. Foster, thank you very much. I appreciate you. Thank you, Joshua. Normally, from my reflections after talking with the guest, I like to put into my words my thoughts that came through it. On Chad's webpage, he puts up 
his quotable quotes. Some of them so perfectly capture ideas of mine and feelings of mine that, but coming from him, they just take on a whole new meaning. So I'm simply going to read you some of the quotes from his page. Happiness is not a feeling. Happiness is not an emotion. Happiness is a decision that each of us makes every single day when we wake up. You do not know what you cannot see when you cannot see it. The facts are far less relevant than the stories we tell ourselves. Life without obstacles removes opportunity for growth. If you're not getting outside of your comfort zone, then you're not growing. Life begins outside of your comfort zone. You have to take advantage of your disadvantages. It is a great time to go blind. This stuff is so easy, I can do it with my eyes closed. Well, that's not something I say, but that's something he would say. All of us are blind, blind in some aspect. Don't let other people define your vision of the future. If you never dare to be great, you'll always be mediocre. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing something despite the presence of fear. If you're not failing from time to time, you're not aiming high enough. Those are some quotes from Chad's page. Check them out. And I look forward to having him back the second time to hear how things went. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 